This is Behind the Curtain at L.A. Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lawrenson. On this edition of the podcast, I'm joined by Mary Louise Hart. She's an associate curator of antiquities at the Getty Museum. Hart specializes in ancient Greek art and the iconography of myth, epic, and drama, as well as its performance and reception. Hart joins us today for some perspective on the theater in ancient Greece and the dramas and myths that form the core of L.A. Opera's upcoming Eurydice Found Festival, celebrating the premiere of composer Matthew O'Coin and librettist Sarah Rule's new opera, Eurydice. I started out at the Getty in 1997. I was hired to be a curator at the villa, and I was hired also to start a theater program for the outdoor theater at the Getty Villa. For the Greek tragedies? For the Greek tragedies, Greek and Roman tragedies that we now produce. At the time, this was an idea, which is interesting about this. This was a vision of one of the city fathers of that time. His name was Franklin Murphy. A lot of people will remember Franklin Murphy. He was a great benefactor to UCLA, founded the Fowler Museum. And um, he was a good friend of the chair of our board at that time, who's Bob Urburu also to many other people at the at the Getty. And he he was the person who said, you know, if you're going to make the villa into a center for the study of Greek, Roman, and Etruscan culture, you should include performance and you shouldn't have an outdoor theater like they had. And it seemed such um such a brilliant idea to um the people who were organizing um, both of the sites at that time. And it's a unique idea. And there is no other program like it at, at museums. Some museums will put on a play or something here and there. But to really have an outdoor uh, theater, a classical theater, um, that's connected directly to the entrance to the museum where our visitors and audience can r- walk right into the ancient world before and after having seen a play is um, a unique and really special concept. Mm-hmm. And it's beautiful to be out there, too. It's a great experience. Yeah, I was going to say, it's not a bad location. Either Getty location isn't bad, right? No, they're not bad. And it's <laughs> it's really beautiful out there at night and sitting outside. And um, there's really not anything else like it. You do get an idea of what it's like to be in ancient Greece, sitting out there, this communal size. It's only a 500-seat theater. So you see everybody just the way the ancient Greeks did. It was very civic and it was very religious for them. And um, they would go to these events not buying tickets when they wanted to go. They went when the play was on and the play was only performed once. Hmm. And it was in a, in a religious context. Um but they would see everybody they knew then. The whole city would go. And the theaters are built in a size that would contain the um, the citizens of the city hmm. so that they were there together. And they were one with the actors. And they often had been chorus members when they were young. So, you know, Pericles was a member of a chorus when he was young. What is it about... Uh the power of of Greek drama, um, tragedy or comedy, um, that 
just it feels like it has informed so much of what uh storytelling is today um so like obviously a lot of operas have been in retellings of of ancient greek myths um but even you know even the way that uh, certain movies or tv shows the storytelling styles it seems like can sort of trace their roots back back to ancient greek drama is is there something elemental about it that um that we cling to is it just that good is it just that good <laughs> well it certainly has held its own for cent- you know millennia millennia um it's like mythology and the greek gods i mean they there is this essential core connection to who they are and what they stand for which was set up in Greek culture and is deep and long ago in the creation of these myths. And no one can really tell you. I mean, it happened with Homer when writing began. You know, Homer is one of the first things that we have that was written down probably in the 8th century BC. Mm-hmm. But these tales he tells are much older than that. And this is very fascinating. Um, the The characters are so well drawn that we feel we know people that are like that. They are elemental and they find themselves in, I think they're, I think partly what it is, is amongst the the different varieties of human and superhuman characters, there are, quote, normal people, humans, human beings, who find the best of themselves or who find... Um, um, who find themselves um, empowered within the stories and the natural kinds of narratives that occur when you have these sort of characters. I mean, nobody really believes, or do they, that the Trojan War was simply about a beautiful woman. Is that all it would take for the Greeks to fight the Persians? Well, no, it's a lot more complicated than that. Yet that's what the Trojan War is ostensibly about. And this is fascinating. But what's so interesting, and I think to me also what fascinates contemporary playwrights are the spaces within the myths. These myths are they're they're kind of categorical and, and they're presentational and you know in this way. But in between the narratives they leave detailed open. They don't, for example, explain. They don't dramatize, for example, Oedipus and Yocasta. What was between them? How did that, wait a minute, how did that happen really? Okay, he married Yocasta and then they had some children and then this happened and the place over. <laughs> but wait a minute, let's stop and dig, dig into what was human about that relationship. Which This is something, say, Luis Alfaro, the, the great playwright, has done in his Oedipus El Rey. Um, and I think that's also something that Sarah Rule has caught on to. It's that understanding that while Orpheus and Eurydice was has been incredibly popular as a as an operatic a libretto, and um, right from the very beginning, it's the first opera. The title of the first opera is Eurydice, and um, 
So should we just did. say Sarah Rule is the playwright uh, who has written the the play Eurydice and uh, the libretto for Matthew O'Coin's new opera that will be premiered later this season at LA Opera, focusing on Eurydice. Um, and that is that sort of space between um, moment here, right? That's what she's doing. You're saying? Yes, it is. And I think it. I think it's one of the best and most powerful ways to adapt um, an ancient myth is to read it and kind of look for the heart of it outside of the words. It's not going to be in the words. It's going to be in between different places like that. And so the so what she has done, and what we've realized as part of this Eurydice Festival and creating this is that actually Eurydice was, was just one part. It's really always about Orpheus. It always is because his history is so dynamic and so diverse. But one of the important aspects of his history is that he went to the underworld and the way to get him to the underworld, as I've come to really believe and understand, uh, also because of uh, underworld cults that worshipped Orpheus in the ancient world, um, this beautiful and and heart-wrenching story of Eurydice that we know mostly from Ovid and Virgil and not really in poetic form from ancient Greece, but in poetic form from Latin, was really a way to get him down there. He needed to get down to the underworld. And um, this this beautiful story was that he had a wife that he had to follow to try to get her back. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, he couldn't bring her all the way back because... Only he was the one who, who needed to come back from the underworld. She should, she, her, that wasn't part of the story for her. Mm-hmm. So she stays down there. So what our playwright, Sarah Rule, is doing is saying, well, what did she do down there? And also, Eurydice is, um, is a nymph. I mean, Orpheus is a demigod. He he's he's he was on the Argonaut. He has done many of many things in his life, but Eurydice is a nymph, and nymphs or dryads, as Virgil called them, these are like f- beautiful female sprites of the woods and the streams. You know, they don't necessarily even always have names. And Eurydice, as Virgil mentions, has sister dryads that are out there. So. Um, or Orpheus can't really marry just an, a normal human female, so he marries this beautiful nymph, Eurydice, but her name doesn't even come up. And in the fifth century, this their story is mentioned by Euripides and others, but her name is not recorded at that time. It doesn't come up until quite centuries later. So we can kind of see this story developing through ancient Greek and Roman history. Of course, Ovid just loves this story um, because it's full of it's it's in his Metamorphoses. It's full of metamorphic references, and Virgil, it, Virgil is the first person to the first poet to uh, give her lines. So mm. she actually speaks, and and she says, "Orpheus, what have you done? You, you know, once he look accidentally looks back, or maybe by fate looks back to see, make sure she's all right, or in his love for her." He wants to see her again, um, and he does, and she, as she dissolves back into the underworld, she's, it's still passive. It's still all about him. What she's saying is, what have you done? You've, 
you've really screwed this up for us, isn't <laughs> for me, and now I have to go back. In some of the later paintings that that show this, a very popular scene, um, not just in performance, but in visual arts and in poetry. Um, some of the paintings show her as she's leaving with Orpheus, kind of looking back longingly at Pluto and Persephone sitting there and, and the other aspects of the underworld. So there is this sense that we wonder about her and her life there. And in the libretto for um, for the world premiere of Eurydice, um, we see she's now got a father, which she never had in the ancient world. We see that he refers to a larger family, mother and and siblings, and that there are things that happen in the underworld, things they can do and things they can't do, and he builds her house of string, and and there's a lot going on down there, actually, but so much of it is poignant because he's dead, too, and they're, 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 they're dunked into the river of forgetfulness so that they don't remember things, and um, it remains a very... Um, well, I mean, sad, sad is kind of a shallow word to use for it because Sarah Rule has built such poignancy into the experience um, because they don't forget everything. There are senses that they remember and um, yet they want to be down there. I'd like to explore this sort of idea of um, filling in more details uh, in these sort of, like you say, these spaces between um, what has been written down centuries and millennia ago. Is there um, sort of a, a, a tradition of doing this um, over the years or is this a relatively recent idea of like, so we don't, we don't know much about Eurydice because not much was said. And so we have this um, opportunity to really dive in and, and create something from this myth. Well, you are the opera expert. And so let's think about this a minute. When I think about the Gluck, when I think about other operas having to do with the story, it really is this, the Gluck is this gorgeous ballet and sung and danced um, vehicle for showing their love. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of it focused on the love. And I think this comes from Ovid mm. to begin with, mm -hmm. um, because Ovid and Virgil were both translated in the 16th century, one in 1540, I think one in 1570. So by the time 1600 comes along, the literati of the Renaissance courts and Venetian courts who were writing libretti are very well aware and well read in Ovid and Virgil. And they have, as as happens with operas, they have orders for, for what the courts would like to have performed. And love operas are really super popular, right? So um the first ones are about even when it's even when it's called Orpheus in these early ones, like La Favola d'Orfeo by Monteverdi in sixteen oh seven, it's still about the love between the two of them, mm -hmm. right? The first one, the Eurydice, which we have by the way a copy of in the Getty Research Institute, that they have an incredible Italian theater collection there with really amazing, surprising things in it. That was commissioned to celebrate the wedding of Marie de' Medici and, and Henry IV, the King of England, in Florence, in the Pitti Palace of 1600. And it's one of the first operas we have a libretto of. And it has a chorus in it. It follows the form. That's the basic 
element that you need to have for, uh, you know, it's not a Harold Pinter play. It follows the form of an ancient Greek tragedy, which has um, certain protagonists, certain numbers of actors, and it always has a chorus commenting upon what's going on in, in, in very many different ways. Um, that particular piece, the Everdici, commissioned for that wedding, was also the first adapted uh, version of the op- of this tale because since it was a wedding, Eurydice makes it back to the upper world again <laughs> because they do, they can't have the bride being killed off on her wedding day, right? <laughs> so to great rejoicing, a whole new ending was was written for it. Yeah. Um, so already. In that time, the very first one that we have already in that time, the commissioners and and the patrons of the operas um, and the writers of the libretti are changing it and adapting it. So what would happen if actually he didn't look back? Or let's say he did look back, but he was able to grab her out of the clutches. I mean, there's a lot of uh, creative energy that inspires um, playwrights, I think, to to say what if, Hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So what if they made it up? Well, there's great rejoicing, and then the composer has another big, great, you know, thing that he can write for the ending, mm-hmm. and everybody's happy. Mm-hmm. Um, is this kind of one of the first to really focus on Eurydice um, as a character? This this play, and then now this opera. It's certainly been the the most the most produced version. And it is unique in the way that she writes it. I mean, as Matthew O'Coin has said, you know, that that was just a, a libretto waiting to happen, that play. Yeah. And so when you read it in that light, you really see it. It's very musical. And um, as critics have noted, um, Sarah Rule is very engaged in the non-spoken aspects of her plays. There's a, there's a lot of writing about what is happening here and what is happening there when there are not words going uh, on. And so it does seem perfect for an opera. And I think it's quite unique in this way. Eurydice comes up in interesting ways like, you know, the Jean Cocteau version, he did a trilogy of Orpheus. He produced a trilogy of Orpheus that does have a very interesting Eurydice in it. It's fascinating, and it it has a lot of different interesting characters in it. So I, I do recommend that anyone interested in in this myth, I think that his his version is crucial to understanding different creative spirits and their interactions with the myth. Um, it's very surreal, but it's really kind of extraordinary. That one. There is the the Camus Black Orpheus, which is um, fascinating. And uh, there have been a lot of treatments of this that include this this love story. It's kind of a love story. It's sort of also in a way like there's Romeo and Juliet because you know it's always doomed, mm-hmm. you know, and you know going in the ending. But these ancient audiences went into these plays knowing the ending, but even they didn't always know how they were going to be taken to the end. And I think that's what they went there for. They especially went to Euripides for that because he was very inventive with Medea, especially. They also would have gone to Sophocles for his poetry. I mean, they, like we do, had excitement at seeing different treatments of familiar. So the adaptation has always Mm -hmm. been part of 
part of the game. And then they would vote on the favorite play, and there was a winner every year. Hmm. They really enjoyed the, the competitive aspect even of performance. Wow. Greek idol. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It was, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. No Ryan Seacrest. No. Um, we were just talking, uh, another LA Opera employee and I, um, as we were walking up here, about how there's there's someone in the office here who is a musician, musically inclined, but doesn't know the world of opera. And so this person... You know, even the the famous operas like uh, we're getting ready to open La Boheme this weekend. This person doesn't know how the opera ends. They're like, oh, don't tell me, don't tell me. And we live in this like you know no spoilers culture. But I love what you're saying about you know oh the audience goes in knowing the ending, yeah. which a lot of us do for operas every time too. Of course. And it's that journey to get there. Yeah. Isn't that more interesting in in so many ways? It's not like an Alfred Hitchcock movie. It's about every single moment in the play, like La Boheme is. I mean, this is people love La Boheme and they love La Traviata because they want that feeling again. They want and they know that the music is so good, the libretto is so good, and the singers are so amazing that they will take them there. And in that kernel is the same religious experience that the ancients had. I mean, it's like gospel singing at church or being at church. That's why people keep going to church. They don't go to see what happens to Jesus at the end. But, you know, it it, it is, I think that opera is more like a religious experience in the way that it inspires emotions and there is catharsis. All of this is elemental in ancient Greek tragedy. And there's a ritual there, too. And there is a ritual there, too, although many scholars will argue not to use that word. Interesting. Because ritual for the Greeks was, of course, very different. And there are rituals at altars where they present, for example, meat for the god, and they cook things, and that's nothing like theater. And a ritual is something that is performed exactly the same every single time you do it, or it doesn't work. Yeah. And theater is not like that. I really appreciate that distinction just now. That's that's brilliant. I love it. Oh, good. Yeah. I'm glad. <laughs> well, I, I I went into this kind of thinking, oh, they always went. It was just one time. Sure, yeah, so yeah, it yeah. was a ritual. Yeah. But no, it wasn't. And mm. and um and the scholars are extremely emphatic on this this point, especially the religion scholars. Sure. Yeah. I mean you would go to see a play these well and these plays aren't performed separately they're they're played in trilogies not always connected thematically or in a narrative one to another and then they have what's called a satyr play which is a sort of a parody of 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 um the noble themes that have gone before and when you count them all up, let's say they're 90 minutes each, so you have six hours in performance, sometime in between, you have at least eight hours to 10 hours that you're sitting in the theater drinking all day long <laughs> in the springtime sun, which is lovely, but you're drinking all day long too. Dionysus is there. He has a seat. It, it's This is not just... I mean. There there must have been some rowdy behavior, some things going on. There just must have been. But Dionysus is there to guide your transformation. Mm-hmm. And so you're transformed by the alcohol, but you're also transformed by the masks, which was the symbol of Dionysus. And um, the actors are transformed by having the mask on and playing, um, dancing and performing. 
it was a very physical, very exhausting, very transformative experience. That was the the point of it, mm. was to honor the God who sits there in your midst and watches the play. Mm. There's a seat for him. Yeah. And in that seat, there was a pole with a mask on it, and it was decorated with a tunic. You know, so it was really supposed to be an emblem as the God watching. And that is not, I mean, that that's really, when you think about what it would be like to go today, you know, to a theater and it, I mean, it's it's just completely alien to yeah. to the way we are, yeah. but it's fascinating, right? And yet we go and, and are transformed. And yet we go, yeah, and we are transformed. And and I'm always excited to see something like La Boheme again because it gives me a chance to think about it more, to enter into it more, and just to hear the the music and and the incredible voices. It's really not about kind of how it ends. Mm -hmm. To me, it's about the journey along the way and being transported by art. Mm -hmm. And just as we wrap up, um, this new opera by Matthew O'Coin, Eurydice, what are you most looking forward to, um, to seeing, to hearing in this world premiere coming up? Well, I can't wait to hear Matthew's music. I listened to his podcast, so I heard a little sampling of it, and it sounds gorgeous. And um, I'm fascinated to hear uh, a new contemporary opera by these two incredibly talented people. I'm interested to hear the singers that are going to be in it also, and to see the way that Sarah Rule has has changed it. Because Matthew said, you know, that was a libretto waiting to happen, but I know she's adapting it also. So it's not quite, you can't just do yeah, it. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm really fascinated to see what it is she's going to do. I have seen the play, so I, I know there's an elevator and I know there are all these different apparatuses on the, uh, on the stage. I'm really interested to see how they change a play into an opera. This doesn't happen very often. It seems to be a new and very unique and um, creatively exciting opportunity. Well, thank you very much for your time. Well, you're welcome. This has really been a great moment, and I'm very happy you invited me. Thank you. Mary Louise Hart is an associate curator of antiquities at the Getty Museum. Hart specializes in ancient Greek art and the iconography of myth, epic, and drama, as well as its performance and reception. The Getty is a partner with L.A. Opera during the upcoming Eurydice Found Festival. You can find all the participating organizations, exhibitions, concerts, and other events at laopera.org. This is Behind the Curtain at L.A. Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lauritsen. <laughs>